in consideration of Israel's most prized possession. One can only surmise that the intent of the invisible God, now unto him, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, that the intent of that invisible God was to show himself real and tangible. Moses did not create the articles of the tabernacle that he built. It was not from his own innovative thought. God drew the plans and the Lord gave the measurements to each piece, to the fabrics, to their dimensions. But none greater stood before them, none more significant than the single article that stood in the holy place, the holy of holies. In historical context, the Ark of the Covenant was Israel's national treasure. It was a small chest, a box, made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. It was about three and a half feet long, a little over two feet wide, and a little over two feet high. It had a lid on it, or a covering which enclosed it. They called it the mercy seat. The mercy seat featured two golden cherubim facing each other, heads bowed, wings drawn. This ephod was something that the high priest would wear. It held jewels on its chest plate that ephod-clad high priest would enter that small room and sprinkle blood of an innocent lamb atop the Ark of the Covenant as the sins of the nation were pushed back for a single year. With bated breath, the nation waited for the cloud of glory to come down and consume the blood from atop the mercy seat. The all of it all is beyond the telling. It was finalized before that golden ark with blood and cloud. Moses obeyed the instruction of God and men with particular skill crafted what could only be described as the embodiment of the most high God. To them, the ark was the only image of Yahweh, Jehovah, peace, power, victory, their banner, provider, he who sees, who comforts, protector, and deliverer. All of it wrapped in the small framework of this most precious chest, a box. In time, as time passed on, Eli, the high priest, will witness its loss to the advancing armies of Philistia. Israel, the nation, will suffer a great defeat of unspeakable proportions. The armies scatter the armies of Israel in disarray. Eli's own sons will die. They will lay lifeless on the barren ground. And most of all, the ark will be taken from their careless hands. Eli's own daughter-in-law After her husband died, after she heard that the ark was stolen, she will depict the moment as she gives birth to a son. Realizing the gravity of their failure, she will give birth and she will name her son Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. The entire scene was froth with suffering and hopelessness. Israel's dark days commenced with no reticence. It was Israel's greatest defeat. There is no loss like that loss. The ark represented the presence 
of God. The Jews often called him simply the presence. God was gone from them, stolen, taken by the hands of their nemesis. In short order, the prophet Samuel will emerge as Israel's spiritual and judicial leader, but his solitary leadership will not last forever. In fact, it will end with the inception of a king, King Saul. Saul will do some good, but as foretold, the nation will find itself embroiled in the desires of this human leader. Saul's Failures in leadership have been well documented by the masses of ministers throughout time. But I submit this morning that among his many issues, combined with jealousy, lust, envy, malice, attempted murder, and the like, none rise higher than the commentary found in 1 Chronicles 13. I'll read it to you. And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. The ark was available, but Saul never sought its recovery. Decades will pass, and Saul will not go after it. He never thought to bring it or recover it. I submit today that it was and will always be a measure of our priorities. The things of God can be possessed and found, but they must be pursued. The moment that David was anointed king by the elders in Jerusalem and by the people, his first order of business was to bring back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. If you will allow me a little narrator's liberty, David wanted to bring God back home. They had the remnants of the tabernacle. They had the blankets. They had the coverings. They had the utensils. They had the altar of sacrifice, the golden lampstand, the water for washing, all the things of purpose, the apothecary's ointment. It was all there, but the holy of holies lay empty. David's desire was after God. He was a man after God's own heart. The ark had been kept at Abinadab's house for 20 years. They knew its location. Saul could have got it, but he did not go retrieve it. But David set out to bring it back home. It was a caravan of purpose. That made the journey that day. They found and put it on a cart pulled by oxen. But in route back home, another careless man with the stain of familiarity reached out to study this golden box, lest it fall. God struck him down where he stood and David shook with fear. They stopped the whole processional, the caravan. They placed the ark in a nearby home and then David scurried back to Jerusalem to study the law and the words of God's intent. He had done something wrong. He did not know and he needed to know the proper way to carry the ark of the covenant. David had good intentions, ladies and gentlemen, but good intentions is man's way of saying that God's order does not matter. When David finally discovered the Lord's way, he ordered the abandonment of the cards. Get rid of it. It once carried this golden box. And then poles. Poles were brought and they fit snugly through golden rings on either side of the ark. Priests were meant to carry it upon poles and that upon their shoulders. That was the way it was designed. I'll quote it for you. David said, none ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them hath the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. And when David finally found the pattern, when he finally put it all together, that would-be caravan turned into a major celebration. Jerusalem was going to be united, finally united. 
Israel was going to come together as a united people. God was going to be praised. The enemies were going to be scattered. Hope was about to rise. Authority was about to be given. And a future was about to be secured. So David called for the singers with instruments of music, paltry, psalteries, and parps, and cymbals, and sounding by lifting up their voice with joy. And David ordered two important things to be done in order to bring the Ark of the Covenant, God, back to the city. David ordered there to be singing and sacrifice to move God into the place of their lives where they needed him where they needed him the most where they lived to move the Lord to move the Ark of the Covenant David ordered singing and sacrifice and the Bible says it was so that when they bear the Ark covenant had gone six paces he sacrificed oxen and fatlings and David danced before the Lord with all his might and David was girded with the linen ephod so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord was shouting and with the sound of the trumpet the scripture says that David danced so much that he lost his outer kingly robe that means he looked like everybody else I hope you can hear me. David worshipped away his position. It was no longer about him. He got rid of his pride the moment he started to dance and to shout and to praise. Let me just pause and say, if you want to keep on your position and if you want to keep on your robe, you can. But today, I think somebody needs to get rid of their position and their pride and the things you think about yourself and get in tune with God. It's time for us. It's time for us to lose ourselves in praise and in worship. Praise him in the morning. Praise him in the noonday. Praise him when the sun goes down. Yay! Hey! He didn't care who saw him or how foolish he might have looked. The Bible says that David leaped and he danced. I wish I had Brother Lejeune. can't do the sideways but I can do the locomotive <laughs> frontwards and backwards I'm going to tell you what when you get God back where he needs to be it's going to come in praise and worship and sacrifice you need to lose yourself stop thinking about how you look you're thinking about what other people see but you ought to be thinking about what God sees And victory fell in Jerusalem. And the victory that fell in Jerusalem was the victory felt all over the nation. Oh, 
It's like a big rock thrown into the middle of a lake and there's a ripple effect. I want to say today, I feel this in the Holy Ghost. What we're about to do today is going to affect our city and our county and counties around us. In fact, it might even affect this state and it might go beyond the borders of our state. What's going to happen is going to be felt in other places. There is going to be a mighty end time revival. There is going to be a bond that's going to be loose. There's going to be anointing and authority. I don't believe that new life is the end to all in. I don't think we're the greatest church that ever lived. I just think we have a great God. But I'm not going to I'm not going to belittle or talk down what God wants to do. We don't rise up in pride, but we rise up in boldness and courage in the Holy Ghost. Because we're not fighting against men, we're not fighting against people, but we are wrestling against powers and principalities and the darkness and the rulers of this world. And we are proclaiming, get your hand off of them, the church is rising up, we're going to go after everybody. Hey! Shaya Masata, I need a two or three people that will help her right now. On the wrong way. Woo. There will be dancing, there will be shouting, there will be leaping, there will be joy, there will be praising. Just give me a moment. It was and it is worship, music, praise, and sacrifice. All the enemies of Israel were afraid that day that the ark was in its proper place. Because when you get God where he belongs and you put him where he belongs high and lift it up. People may not know what's happening, but the devil knows what's happening. And the enemy knows what's happening. Moab had no defense against the ark of the covenant. The Philistines suddenly looked anemic against the Ark of the Covenant. The Amalekites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and every other ite you can name were suddenly an insignificant mass against the immeasurable power of the Ancient of Days. The cloud that rested and the fire that fell. He came by way of singing and it came by way of sacrifice. So show me a church that loves the emotion of praise but has no sacrifice. And I'll show you a church with no foundation, no root, and no vested interest. Likewise, show me a congregation with all sacrifice and no praise. And I'll show you a church with no joy. I'll take singing and sacrifice today, praise and giving, dancing and travail, rejoicing and intercession. That's the key.
Here's your Bible. Every six paces, David made a sacrifice. Every six steps, he made a sacrifice all the way back to Jerusalem. It was a long trail of praise and sacrifice, of blood and worship. It took time. A lamb was slain, blood was spilled, and praise was given until finally they broke through the outer gates of Israel's habitation, Jerusalem, and the party broke loose. It was a celebration unmatched by anything they had ever seen. People were in the streets and in the courtyards. They were spilling out of homes and stores and running forward. They were dancing, the Bible says, leaping, shouting, jumping, rejoicing. People everywhere caught up in the moment. Trumpets were playing. Instruments could be heard, drums pounding out a rhythm. God was among them, and Israel's future was secure. And I know, because I've been around a little bit, I know the commentary of those who denounce such things as just human or physical. I know those who bemoan dancing, they belittle our times of worship and celebration. But the Bible is God's word, and the word says there's a time to weep. And there's a time to laugh. And there's a time to mourn. (laughs) Tomorrow we may struggle. But today is a time to dance. I stand here to declare to you there's a healing and a help coming your way. I believe that what we're about to do is an introduction to the miraculous in our lives and among our family. There will be singing and there will be sacrificing and the bonds are going to be loosed. And we are going to take dominion. When the prodigal son left his father's house. He took all that he thought was coming to him and he went into a far country, Jesus said. And here's your word. There wasted his substance with riotous living. He didn't even know where it all went. That son spent all of his inheritance until he was empty. That far country took all that he had It chewed him up. It devoured whatever good he had ever done. The prodigal son lost all of his wealth, his father's gift. He lost his place in life. And perhaps most of all, he lost his identity. He never felt like a son when he lost it all. Because the world will take more than just your stuff. It'll take your hope and your dreams. The world will steal your purity. It'll ravage you of peace. It consumes the person you hope to be. It sifts you like sand until there's nothing left but an empty shell of what you used to be. And in the pit, among the swine, at the bottom of it all, when there was no lower place to fall, that prodigal lifted up his eyes. When he got to the very bottom, he lifted up his eyes. And the Bible says this. Are you ready? The Bible says, when he came to himself, he's grinding. He's gnawing on it, on an empty corn cob. 
He's wallowing in the pit with a pig. And he came to himself finally. And he lifted up his eyes. In these jars are names you put in of backslidden family members and backslidden sons and backslidden daughters and moms and dads and aunts and uncles and prodigals fill these jars. And when he came to himself, he remembered. I feel something about to break loose in this house. Hear the voice of the Spirit. When that wayward, entangled son finally comes to himself, he's going to remember the Father's house. (laughs) There was a memory of the love of his Father's house. He remembered how good it was to be in that place. There was a thought, and the parable describes the day he made his way back home. The father was looking for him to come, and the father ran and hugged him and fell on him and kissed him and cried. And this is what daddy said. Kill the fatted calf. And somebody go get a a robe. And somebody go get a ring. And somebody go get the provisions. We're going to have a party. Because when your sons and your daughters and your father and your mother and your aunts and your uncles and your nieces and your nephews and your loved ones come back home I want to tell you right now we are going to throw down and we are going to have us a party I'm going to speak it right out of my mouth they're coming they're coming they're coming they're coming they're coming Scotty, I hugged my niece at Christmas. I hugged her and I held on to her and I said, out of my mouth, I said, when you get back to holiness, you are going to be so powerful. You are going to win so many people. You're going to start a Holy Ghost revival. You're going to minister to people. I'm speaking it right now. Break out. Give up. There's going to be prodigals. They're going to be on their way. There's one right there. There's a prodigal right there walking in the front. Her name's in the jar. you came from don't matter what you've done the grace of God is great and the love of the body of Christ is rising I don't even know how far I can get now I got so many much more uh, I feel I should just stop and say dozens of them are going to come. Perhaps a hundred prodigals. A hundred more prodigals. Who knows how many are in our city? 
I need someone to count right now how many are in your family that you want to come back to God and shout out a number. Someone has a number over here for a number. Can you tell me how many seats you need us to reserve for your family that's not yet back? Fifteen. That's about four rows right there. Somebody? Five? Twenty? Tell me. Tell me. Say it. Two, two, say it, shout it out, don't wait for anyone, shout out the number. Every number is a soul, every person that you love, they're going to be coming back and we got to have room, we got to have room for a mighty refilling of the Holy Spirit. Just use your, use your thought right now. How much room do we need in our new sanctuary, not for new converts, but for people who have already been baptized in Jesus' name? Do you realize we can have the greatest revival ever known and never baptize one person in Jesus' name? Do you know why? Because they've already been baptized and all they need to do is repent and say, Lord, would you forgive me? And immediately the angels are having a party in heaven. The Bible says they rejoice. We ought to be rejoicing. It's time to build a place for our families. Everybody say singing. Everybody say sacrifice. There will be singing and there will be sacrifice. And I feel like joining the church that Paul wrote to in Philippi when he said rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. This is the moment we're going to rejoice. Okay, be seated for just a moment. Thank you. I'm almost done. Somebody give me another number. Eight. Say it. Five. Say it. Four. Fifteen. Thirty. Hey, we got to have room. This is what the church is about. We got to have room. Do you not know that the Lord is coming back soon? Do you not know that our world is in turmoil? Don't you see the one world government and one world currency and one world order and one world? Don't you see that unfolding right before your eyes? Wake up. Jesus said you can see the signs of the sky, but you don't know the signs of the times. We're in the last days of time. Wake up, everybody. We got a little bit of time. We got a little window and we got to win everybody. We've got to reach everybody. I would say, if you have trouble with dancing, shouting, please don't forget about Moses and Miriam. Don't forget about Israel who were running for their lives, the whole nation, the mindset of fear, doubt, 490 years of horrible history behind them. The Egyptians let them go, Pharaoh let them go, but Pharaoh changed his mind. Pharaoh, that unrelenting and hardened king, had realized that he had released his entire servant army. Egypt was empty and the children of Israel had taken all of their gold, silver, wedges, silk, treasure. God, part of the Red Sea, was a miracle of divine order and intervention. But when Moses led them all the way through, the armies of Egypt did not stop. They also were walking through the Red Sea. 
Pharaoh and all of his mighty men were racing through the same parted waters that the children of Israel had just passed. They traveled the same path. Israel should have been calm, but they were fearful because they looked back and they saw the advancement of their oppressors. Oppressors. Oppression. Oppressors. Never stop chasing you until there is baptism. Those oppressors were still after them, even, even through the water. But the Bible says that when they got in the midst of the water, that the Lord collapsed those mighty waters. Their oppressors were in pursuit. That's when Moses stood up and said to the people, Fear ye not, stand still. Here's Exodus 14. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see no more again forever. And when those waters swallowed up the enemy, the very men who had bound them, beat them, afflicted them for centuries, a generational bondage was broken. The waters consumed the oppressor. And Moses started to sing. A new song. And he said, I will sing unto the Lord. For he had triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God. And I will prepare him a habitation. Hear it. I'm going to make him a place. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And Miriam started a dance line. It did not start with George Strait. Miriam started a 600,000 lady dance line and it's in the Bible. I'll read it to you. You folks have got to start reading the Bible. And Mary, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, also Moses, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women, all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dances. They were all dancing and they were all singing and Miriam answered them, sing ye to the Lord for he had tried gloriously the horse and the rider hath he thrown into the sea. This is the day the Lord hath made. I rise to say to all of you that through the waters of baptism people are going to be set free. They're going to be set free from addictions. They're going to be set free from addictions of every kind of drug and every kind of alcoholic beverage and every kind of pornographic thing and every kind of thing that binds them. The blood of Jesus Christ is going to set them free. It's time for you to be set free. It's time for our city to be set free. And it's not just the physical things. You're going to be set free from fear and from sorrow and from suffering and from memories of abuse and from scars, from emotional havoc and abuse. People are wrecked. The world has wrecked them. Our cities, so many cities are littered with torn lives and displaced people, rich and poor, all of them, hundreds of them, thousands of them. 
They take pills to fall asleep. They take pills to stay awake. Methamphetamines is on the rise. Alcoholism. Did you know this? Alcoholism is said to have increased in the last 12 months during the pandemic. More people have taken up to drinking. More alcohol was being sold of all the things they deemed as necessary and essential. Alcohol was one of the top essential things that our government and our leaders and our state said that people should have. The world is getting darker by the hour, but we're going to build a lighthouse for those alcoholics to come and to be set free. And they're being chased by their oppressor. But we know the one who can both part the water and consume the devourer. Come on, stand right now to your feet because I know the Lord is in this house. I'm there. So take a look. The Hebrew scholars have considered Psalm 100 to hold all the elements of celebration from many other parts of the scripture. In fact, Psalm 100 holds the elements of celebration from Psalm 47. Psalm 93, Psalm 95, Psalm 96, Psalm 97, Psalm 98, and Psalm 99. All the elements of that are found in Psalm 100. They all run into or culminate into Psalm 100. And though we, we think it's anonymous, the writer, it sounds like David. So I'll read it to you today. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands serve the Lord with gladness come before his presence with singing know ye that the Lord is good he's God No, he's right no, he's Lord. No, he's Savior. No, he's omnipotent. No, he's omnipresent. No, he's omniscient. No, he's on your side. No, he bought you. No, he's going to bring you out. No, he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. You got to know he's God and you're not. He's the healer. It's he that hath made us. And not we ourselves. So abandon humanism, evolution, and secularism. Because he did it. We are his people. Come on, have you ever lifted up your voice and say, Lord, I'm your child. You got to take care of me. And we're the sheep of his pasture. Here's the big one. Are you ready? Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And to his courts of praise. And be thankful and bless his name. Here's the last verse. For the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. And his mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. Now we're going to end where we begin. We're going to shout to God. We're going to rejoice in the Lord. And I'm going to pray 
that when we bring our offerings and our sacrifice next week, we're skipping down the aisle. I want us to smile and thank God. Because the moment you open up your hand to release to God, God's going to put something in it. An open hand that gives is the same hand that can receive. Some of you are going to stumble and think it's about money. It's not about money. It's about obedience. It's about worship. And you have no idea what God's going to put back in your hand. In fact, he might put something back in your hand money could not buy. That's right. Somebody tell me, how much is a restored relationship worth? How much is recovery? How much is peace in your marriage worth? How much is your soul worth? God's going to put something back in your hand. Money could not buy. All the money you had couldn't buy it. We're going to end where we began. Because when they crossed over, God said, here's the land. Now go fight the battle. The Bible says that a shout went up before the walls of Jericho came down. The Bible says, I'll just stop here. I I could go on. The Bible says that a shout and trumpets were heard. And a picture was broken when Gideon prevailed over the enemy. If you want to take possession of the promise, and if you want those walls to collapse, there's going to be singing and there's going to be sacrifice. Now, together, maybe you think that this is just something I'm asking you to do. I want you to do it for yourself. First, I want you to give according to your desired healing. I want you to give according to your desired joy. And I want you to give according to your desired blessings. And now we're going to shout to God and you're going to make a joyful noise unto the Lord with leaping and dancing and there will be deliverance and there will be hope. And if you're at home or you're on the outside, let me just tell you, this is your church. If you're in your living room, if you're at your kitchen table, if you're watching this on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday, any day, I want you to lift up your voice right now and the body is going to lift up their voice and we're going to shout to God. Come on, would you release your voice right now? Oh! Oh!